Wonderful to see you all. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and similar to Ali, I was driving to work this morning. Oh, sorry. Driving to church this morning. Gosh. <laughs> driving to church this morning, and I was like, man, it's beautiful out. It's just like sunny and cold and dry. I'm from Denver. This is how every morning is in the winter in Denver, you know? And I just was like, ah, just a, a glimpse, a little taste of home. Um, so yeah, welcome to church on this fine Sunday. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that out, or we still have a lot of those, um, those blue Bibles on the seats that are just the, the Gospel of John. Grab it, open up to the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you are in a big Bible and you need to find, use a table of contents to get there, no worries. Once you get to John, just the first page is where we're going to be. So John chapter 1 is where we've been working through. This year we are in a new uh, sermon series. At the beginning of the year we started off on an exploration through the Gospel of John, which is uh, it's going to take us uh, some, some time because there's a lot of incredible things in the Gospel of John that you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament, anywhere else in, in Scripture. Honestly, John is a very unique guy. We're going to look at some of that today. Um, and we're in, so if, if you're new, this is a great time to join us as a church. We're still just uh, starting John, and so you'll be able to jump in really quickly and not have to do any catching up, pretty much, which is awesome. Um, and so we're in the prologue. So what we're going to do, I'm just going to read through this prologue. I'm going to pray for our time together, and then we'll jump into talking about the Word, all right? <clears throat> John starts like this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from John, or there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. This is a different John than the author of our book, John. It's a little confusing. This is John the Baptizer. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He, that is the word, was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But, who all who did, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children, to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. This is John the baptizer again. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we come to your word, um, your scriptures, which you have used to reveal yourself and, and what you have done in this world to us, God. And we just come and humbly admit that, that we need 
you to help us understand what it's even saying. We need you to help us understand what's going on. We need you to interpret these words for us so that we might both find life in them and then through that life be energized to help others find life and light as well. So I just pray for all of us today. Would you give us just a great time together? Would you give us ears to hear, soft hearts, open minds, God, to what you want to accomplish through your word today? Pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by your spirit, amen. Amen. Well, we are in this third sermon now where we are unpacking the, this prologue, and um, the, this prologue is really intense, really big concepts, really broad-ranging concepts, so they take time to unpack. And so if you are feeling antsy, that's okay. Feel free to get up walk to the back, stand, get some water, whatever. It's not going to distract me or, or other people. That's totally fine. Just wanna, I just had this idea. I said, you know what? We might be here for about 50 minutes. So if you need to get up and walk around, totally fine, okay? Totally fine. Don't even worry about it. But, but we're in our third sermon here where we're unpacking what this word of God is that John is exploring here. And, and he makes clear that by the end of this prologue that this word had shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. This is his claim. And when you read the other gospel accounts of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are the books before John, when you read these other gospel accounts, um, what they're doing is they're, we've talked about this a little bit, they're trying to bring you on a journey to help you ask this question, who is Jesus? And, and how might I begin to, to, to read these gospels in order to, to answer that question? You know, Mark takes 16 chapters to do it. Matthew takes 28 chapters to bring you on this journey. Luke takes 24 Long, long chapters. I mean, every time I'm in Luke, I'm just like, why is this chapter so long? Who, like, why are they so long, much longer than Luke? I have no idea. Anyways, I should, I should know that. I'll look it up one day and I'll tell you guys. But why are these chapters in Luke so long? But John, not John, he says, I'm going to tell you exactly who I think Jesus is, not just in the first chapter, but in the first 18 verses of the first chapter. This is what John is all about. Now, this doesn't mean that John isn't bringing us into an investigation of sorts. No, he is actually. Because after all, after you read the prologue, several questions should probably and probably do pop into your mind. Um, what is John referring to when he's talking about darkness? What is this John guy that he references twice here? Who's this guy and what is he trying to help people believe anyways? Why is the word so focused on making people children of God? How does the word accomplish that? What's wrong with the family that I'm in, right? Like, and if believing is the entry ticket to this family of God, what exactly does that look like? This, this is the investigation that John is trying to bring us on. These are, these are the questions he wants us to ask. These are the questions he wants us to investigate. He's going to help us answer questions like these throughout this book. They don't so much have to do with Jesus' identity, he makes it crystal clear in the first 18 verses. They have to do more with the spiritual backdrop this word gets dropped into. You see, that these questions have more to do with the greater spiritual drama that's at play in the world than, than who Jesus is. Now, that doesn't mean that John isn't hoping to clarify who Jesus is for those of us that need that clarity. No, absolutely. He just does it, boom right on the front end for us. He was going to bring us into a, a different investigative journey than the other gospel writers. And he's doing this because he's writing several decades after these other three dudes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, after they wrote. 
Several several more decades have passed. The Christian mission has morphed and expanded into a lot of different cultures and and a lot of different places. And a lot of these cultures and places didn't have the same backdrop and understanding of the spiritual reality at play in creation that the Jews understood. Matthew and Mark are written almost primarily to Jews. And Jews had a good understanding of the spiritual foundations of everything that was at play behind physical reality. But John is realizing, hold on, guys, like we're talking about who Jesus is. It's really important to know who Jesus is. But there's another part of the story that we have to make clear for people, which is what is going on anyways? Why does Jesus have to come? What is he trying to do even? This is what John is trying to help us understand. How are we supposed to partake? What's the plot of this story? And, and, and how are we called to be a character in the midst of it? And this is why John's gospel is especially critical to a city like Seattle. There is confusion, so much confusion surrounding uh, the, the spiritual realities that are at play behind everything that we can see, taste, and touch, and smell. Am, am I right? There, there's great confusion around these things. There's great debates about these things, whether there is a spiritual reality behind everything or not even. There's a lot of intellectual misunderstanding about what is actually going on here in the world. And here's the thing to remember is that things that we think that take place in the intellectual sphere always have a way of working themselves out into our lived experience. So thoughts lead to emotions, which lead to actions in the world. This is just how these things are interconnected and take place. And in a similar way, things that we do lead to causing us to feel certain ways, which can influence our thinking. So all these are are, are connected to one another. And when we start with the intellect, when we start by getting a greater understanding of of what's going on in the world, we are really setting ourselves up in the best way possible uh, for success when it comes to how we operate in the world. If we understand the world, we know how we can partake and operate within it. Because here's the deal. Um, sociologists, Sociologists have diagnosed Western culture like this, and it's tragic. Uh, Many of us are not from the West here, but this will be really helpful to help um, you understand how, what's going on in the minds of Westerners. They put it like this. Those in the West are increasingly unable to define themselves and their purpose in any meaningful way. Defined. This is intellectual language. Leading to intense feelings of insecurity, anxiety, vulnerability, exposure, and precariousness. This is emotion. And we know that these emotions lead to to, uh, an existence in the world that is uncertain, uh, precariousness. This really gets down to the fact that that a lot in the West, typically people in their 20s and 30s, I think this quote is primarily focused on, typically people in their 20s and 30s, they feel precarious, which means what? It means that they feel that they are completely at the mercy of any circumstance that's going to wash into their life. Powerless, you could say. And, and, and I would say that this feeling of precariousness is, is common inside of churches, outside of churches, because we're increasingly unable to define, just to say, who we are and what our purpose is. So we just struggle to know this. Um, it's similar every now and then I have an anxiety dream where I'm standing here in front of all y'all, and I have not prepared anything. 
and I'm just having to bring it up on the spot. I'm, on, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. I, I, anybody else have anxiety dreams at work anywhere else? Yeah, Gregor has. Yeah. These sociologists are saying that many in the West are living this anxious dream, that their existence is a, a waking anxiety dream in that way. Thankfully, John provides the key that we need in order to assess where we're at, the steps we need to take in order to know who we are, what play we're in, what our purpose is in that play, and how we can fulfill it. And he starts by pointing us to this main character, the Word. The Word. This Word that is God. This Word that is Jesus Christ. What does he say about this Word? We've gone over this uh, already a little bit. He tells us the Word is this powerful, eternal, creative force. That which brought forth life. It brings forth life. We talked about that two weeks ago. Then he tells us the word has this incredible revelatory component to it where it brings forth light. We talked about that last week. It it, it reveals what is real and true and and good. And then he tells us this third major component. That's what we're going to spend our time on today. That this word is personal. That this word isn't just an it. You can't refer to the word as an it. It's a person. And it's actually going to become a person in the way that you and I most clearly know a person to be. It's going to have a body. It's it has flesh. It has flesh. It's a him. This word wasn't content to be a transcendent, distant, and spiritual person. This word extends his personhood into our existence, is what, what John tells us, into our space as flesh. This infinite, personal, life-giving, light-bringing force transcends into our existence, into this greater spiritual drama that's at play as a human. And so we're going to do two things today. First, we're just going to unpack the implications behind this word becoming flesh. This is a big idea. It's a complex idea in some ways. And this is sometimes called the incarnation in Christian circles. So if you've heard the incarnation, this is what it's referring to. This verse in verse 14, the word becoming flesh. Flesh, Jesus Christ coming to the world. That's the first thing we're going to do. And then the, the second thing we're going to do is we're going to unpack how it sits in this greater spiritual drama that's at play right now, which is actually going to breathe a lot of definition of who we are and what our purpose is. So that's what we're going to do. So as we dive into the incarnation, what I want to do first is deal with the skeptic's objection. Because there's a really valid and good point here that goes like this. Jesus and his followers, they claim that he was God, God in the flesh. Big deal. Many, 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 many rulers have done the same thing. The pharaohs, the ancient pharaohs, they claim to be the incarnation of mostly the Egyptian sun god, Ra. Uh, Cleopatra comes on the scene. She died 30 years before uh, Jesus actually was born. She claimed to be the incarnation of the Egyptian goddess Isis, goddess of fertility, All the Roman emperors in the first couple centuries would claim to be divine, that the gods got together, that they were offsprings of the gods. Have you heard this? This is a very good point. In a sense, Jesus wasn't unique in this regard then, is what the conclusion is. And it's an interesting thought. In many ways, he still is. This is this is kind of a few points to consider. First, Jesus claimed to be the God of a monotheistic religion. Monotheistic religion. We don't have uh, hardly any examples of that in antiquity. That's key. Um, And then second, Jesus' divinity, I almost said claim to divinity, but that's not exactly quite right. 
Jesus didn't lean on his divinity in order to rule over other people. This is the, the, the heart of, of why rulers would say, I'm divine. That means that people had to submit to them. Not so Jesus. Jesus does actually quite the opposite. People come into contact with him, conclude, oh my goodness, this must be God. And he's like, hey, keep that to yourself. Please don't tell anybody that. I don't want people to know that until I'm ready to die. So Jesus doesn't actually come to this earth with an intent to rule an earthly kingdom. And so he actually doesn't lean on his divinity in order to... Uh, Help people obey his authority in that way. Third, as we will discuss today, Jesus' followers came to the conclusion of his deity, not by his claims necessarily, but by their experiences with him, by their experiences with him. They interacted with a dude, and they're like, this is more than just a dude. And then fourth, his claim of divinity, this is, this is I think, one of the strongest points that we can make about Jesus' divinity. It stood the test of time. 2,000 years later, virtually everybody rolls their eyes at the Pharaohs, at the Caesars, at the Cleopatras of antiquity. Unless, I, I haven't bumped into anybody that says, no, Cleopatra was in fact that Isis. She was the incarnation of Isis. If that's you, I don't offend you. I'd love to meet you. You're probably a really fascinating person. No. No! All those have fallen away. We've, everybody rolls their eyes at these things as an obvious power grab. These are motivations of power grab. Not so with Christ. 2,000 years later, billions of people still contend that this is true. So, so Jesus becoming to the flesh, word becoming flesh. Let's entertain the possibility that this, is, this happened. That this happened, that, that it took place, that it's true. What's John trying to bring to mind for us in the midst of this prologue with regards to the word becoming flesh? I want to suggest, and this is kind of implicit, it doesn't explicitly come out and say it, but it's a huge thrust. John wants us to realize the absurdity of it. We might entertain it as true, but it's absurd. This is silly. The, the Greek word flesh has, this, uh, has connotations in the Greek world of being kind of gross, dirty even. Paul even actually used it this way in his writings. He talks about the flesh. It's the same Greek word that John uses. The flesh, sarks, the body that just seeks to, to feed its own appetites, protect itself. Flesh, you can't really trust it. It's kind of gross. It's not quite as true as intellect. It's not quite as powerful as emotion. Flesh. John's trying to point us to the fact that this is an absurd claim. There's a big gap between these two. A huge one. That this eternal, powerful, out time, outside of time and space, life-giving, light-bringing entity would put on flesh? Mm. It's absurd. That which is outside of time and space is going to submit itself to space and time, that the infinite would become finite in that way, the altogether powerful would become dependent, the life-giving force shows up and needs what? Someone to give life to him? Talking about baby, baby Jesus? The, the, the light-bringing being stooped into darkness? Why would God do this? If you had superhero powers, would you lay him down? If you could fly, come on. You would not. You would not lay him. I would not lay him down. We would not lay them down. Most certainly not. The absurdity of this leads to incredible reality 
at play, which must be the humility of the word. And, and while it's not specifically mentioned, it's one of these central focuses of the prologue. The humility of the word, the all-powerful, becomes subject under other powers here on earth. Wow, why would the word do that? Now, that's a question of what spiritual drama is going on. We're going to come back to that later. But also of primary importance to John is the very nature of this word that entered into the world. John is telling you exactly what he believed to be true about Jesus. He says that the word, which he equated with God, it became flesh, and that flesh dwelt among us. This is what the word did. It dwelt among us. Now, packed into this word dwelt is much, much more than, than, meets, than, than, than seems to be on the surface. This word dwelt is very interesting. Like I said, John is a very unique guy. He's a very clever guy. He's an incredible writer. And so this word dwelt, John's the only person that uses it. Not only in the Bible, but in antiquity. People think that he invented this word. This word the dwelt that you see there. Where does it come from? Well, there's a Greek word that was used to refer to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. If you were here, we preached through the book of Exodus. Wow, several years ago now. Time flies. Um, We preached through the book of Exodus a while ago. Oh, it's just 2021. You can go back to 2021 and find it. Um, But we we preached through this book of Exodus, and there, uh, Israel, after, you know, 10 plagues and all that, goes to Mount Sinai, where they receive the law from the Lord. And packed into that law is also this description for how to build something called the tabernacle. And it takes up so much space, so much space. And we kind of roll our eyes as we read through our Bible reading plans. I think this is the point in the Bible where a lot of us give up on our yearly Bible reading plans. Like, oof, this is boring. It takes up so much space, even more space than, than talking about the 10 plagues. Pastor, uh, well, Elder Ben actually preached on this, uh, on the tabernacle when we went through it. And, and it's so detailed there's so many descriptions of how it was being set up, what's to be built with it, what the furniture is supposed to look like that's going to, that's going to go in it, who's allowed to go in it, when they're allowed to go in it. And, and the question is, why is it so detailed? Why is there so much detail here? It's so strange. Because the tabernacle is meant to bring in and house the dwelling fullness of God. Once they construct it, This cloud that they had been following to get to Sinai, which was God, comes down into it in his fullness, in his full glory, and it's intense. The fullness of God comes into this tent that they had created. It's it's essentially a wedding tent, although probably ten times bigger than the biggest wedding tent you've ever been in. God comes into it. And then he goes up when it's time to move on and he moves out, and they're supposed to follow him, so they, 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 they break down this tent real quick, and there's hundreds of people that have to carry this huge tent on their shoulders, follow this, where the cloud stops, they build the tent again. God comes down into it, and it's full glory. When, and, and even if they unintentionally set it up kind of wrong, people die. The fullness of God comes to dwell in this tent, the tabernacle. Greek word for it in the Old Testament is skene. Old Testament's in Hebrew, but as they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the word, this word, skene. And so when John comes to talk about the word of God coming down into earth, he takes that skene, that noun, the thing, the tabernacle, turns into a verb, skenao. 
is this word tabernacled with us. The fullness of God came down in our midst. That's the only conclusion that I can have here. The fullness of God came down, the fullness of him. It's intense. Part of God didn't come down, all of them. That's what he's saying. And just like how when, when the tabernacle would go from place to place and three Jewish tribes camped on every side of it, he dwelt in our midst and we camped with him. The disciple, Jesus famously said at one point, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. So for three ministries, he's this traveling minister. The disciples are with him, sometimes camping. He says he dwelt among Israel. He camped, we, we were all camped around him. It's remarkable. He's saying the fullness of God came down here to the, specifically the Jewish tribes. The fullness of this creative, life-giving, light-bringing word became flesh in the person of Jesus and slept, ate, talked, hung out among us, just like any other human. So don't misunderstand. You may have heard in these past few sermons that we've given, ah, Jesus is the life. He's a great model how to live life and how to give life to other people by serving them. Or, or oh man, Jesus has a great light. When, when, when he came to the, the world, he had a lot of great things to say that were really revelatory for their time and really insightful. Those are incomplete. Jesus did come to, to bring life, to bring light, to, to bring a, a teaching of, of truth that, that would extend life to the, the whole world, but he was far more than just another mere human that was providing wisdom and acts of service. Look what John says starting in in 14. Let's let's read it again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed what? Just another man? No, we observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one. So John the Baptist sees it. This is the one of whom I'm said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his, there's the word, fullness. Corresponds to tabernacle. Fullness. It was all there. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John says, this human wasn't just the best human I've ever had the chance to meet. There was a quality about him that was altogether heavenly. He didn't just quantitatively do a lot of good things. He was goodness. He was goodness that outpaced the rest of humanity. He didn't just extend a lot of grace or expound on a lot of truth. You see, there was just this quality of grace and truth that he was full of. He overflowed with it. It came from within. You see, Jesus isn't just a mere human is what he's saying. He was of another world. It wasn't just godly or do godly things. He was God. This is what John's trying to say. He dwelled with us like God dwelled in the tabernacle. God's done this before. He's doing it again. The fullness of God came to earth. And this is part of the reason why John mentions Moses. Uh, sometimes we, some translations, some older ones, um, will contrast these two and put a word but between. The law was given to Moses, but grace and truth came. But there's no but there in the Greek. What John's actually doing is he's saying, we've had a human that's brought grace and truth here before by way of the law, given from God to this human. Moses, chief of all the prophets in Israel. Jesus outpaces him. 
leaves them completely behind. There's a quality to Jesus and grace and truth that altogether leaves the greatest examples of grace and truth that we have received on this earth before behind, completely behind. Jesus Christ was this grade A, unfiltered, fully powered grace that came straight from heaven. He didn't just do great things. He was great. He just didn't shed some light on things. He was light. He didn't just extend life to people. He was life. He wasn't just gracious. He was grace. Didn't just tell the truth. Was truth. This is who Jesus was. This is who the word was. John is saying he's building out an entirely different category of human than we or anybody has ever really had. There's another way to think about it like this. Um, John was one of Jesus' closest friends. Closest friends. It's top three in the disciples, part of that cadre, that Jesus cadre. You'd love to be part of the Jesus cadre, right? But it, it's even assumed that even of those three guys, he's kind of number one, top slot. Jesus is like, oh man, this is why at the Last Supper, John is the one reclining against Jesus, kind of laying his head on his shoulder. John is, knows Jesus perhaps better than any other person on earth. And at the risk of making gender stereotypes, what do guys typically do with guys that they're really close to. They make fun of them. We rag on one another. We love to rag on one another, which is to say they point at the imperfections of their friends and they make fun of them. I have three little brothers. Oof, you should, you should be at a Thanksgiving dinner in my house. Okay, it's, it's a blast. It's a blast. I do this with my friends. The closer that Dave and I get to one another, we make fun of each other more. In fact, I would say that the... the the more you see a guy make fun of another guy, the more that guy probably loves that guy, okay? John didn't do that. John did it with Peter. In John chapter 20, John makes fun of how slow of a runner Peter is. We're gonna see it. <laughs> so, uh, Peter's a slow runner. Didn't do it with Jesus. Not, no one did it with Jesus. As Jesus' disciples got closer and closer to him, they recognized more and more, this guy isn't human which is the opposite of what always happens. It doesn't matter what gender you are. The closer you get to someone, what typically happens? You, start, you begin to see their flaws, their imperfections, more than that. Their annoyances. Each and every human being is incredibly annoying in some way. Me too. And as you get closer to someone, those surface. The idealized version that you had of, of your family, your friends, your romantic partner, your boss, your coworkers, your pastors, as you get to know them more, you're like, oof, this person is just another human with a lot of flaws and pretty annoying. No one said that to Jesus. No one said that to Jesus. You know, I mean, you've, as Dave, myself, and Tylene, we've got to know you guys more. You've probably had that. You've seen us uh, teaching on the stage, then you get together with us, and you get to know us a little bit more, and you're like, hold on a sec. There's some flaws here. There's some annoyances here. There's some shortcomings here. And what's the temptation then for us, for everybody, really, to remain, stage, or to remain sages from the stage, to not be known, right? To not be known and, and let idealized, romanticized versions of, of us exist in, in your mind. That, that's what would benefit us. 
That's not what Jesus did. <laughs> That's not what it means to do ministry. It means being known. Now, of course, there's boundaries associated with that, but you're going you're gonna to come into contact with Dave, me, Tylene, anybody else that's doing ministry and trying to help you work towards following Christ. You're going to be like, oh, they're not perfect. Jesus was known even more in depth than we are. Complete perfection. Complete perfection. And it's good that that you you know those who are trying to lead you to life in Christ and see their shortcomings so that you can know, oh man, they too have to rely on Christ. Oh man, if anything does happen here in our midst, it must be the work of the Spirit, not the work of personalities. That's great. But Jesus is this unique example where God comes down. He's fully known. And people conclude he's fully perfect. It's incredible. He's more accessible it's seen as more perfect. This is the dilemma that John and all the other disciples are in, that they're forced to conclude what he concludes here in verses 14 through 17. This guy was God. This guy must be God in the flesh. So that's a drive-by on the incarnation. There's so much, much, much more we can say. Um, but John isn't just telling us that this eternal word, God, became flesh. He's telling us something else, too. He's telling us why. He reveals to us the goal of it. He reveals to us the purpose of it, which is to say he reveals to us that greater drama that I spoke to earlier. He's like, there's a greater drama going at play here, and he points to it here in the prologue. Let's start in verse 10. John says, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the, or not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Now, there's a profound dynamic here that's taking place that that if you've been a Christian for a long time, you might assume this drama and you might be sitting on it, but it's worth slowing down and pointing at it. It's always worth slowing down and pointing at it because there's something here that's real and true that helps us really understand why this God is coming to earth anyways, why he's even doing what he's doing. And it goes like this. There's actually a great spiritual struggle at play in the world. Back up to verse 5. John says, that light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Hmm. There's darkness. John is making a nod to the the depth of a struggle that's actually happening between the word and this thing, darkness, so much so that when, when, when the word shows up to this world that he created, this world cannot recognize him, this world cannot accept him. How strange. There's a greater spiritual backdrop going on play, going on in the the background. It goes like this. Not only is there this struggle between light and darkness, this darkness actually has its own personal nature to it. This darkness is the person. You say, where where do we see that? I don't see that anywhere here. Well, there's this verb here at the end of verse 5 that says, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Some translations say grasp it. Some translations say comprehend it. Um, and these, in fact, the translators have struggled with this word uh, because, and so if your Bible uses one word, there's probably another one at the bottom in the footnotes, the opposite's down there. 
And translators have really struggled with this uh, verb because the greater meaning of the verb is to master, to master. So the darkness has not mastered it. So you can see how you can master something intellectually. You can see how you can master something physically. You know, that, that's the tension they're being brought into. But, but John is really speaking spiritually here. And he likely has both in mind that, that this darkness, even though it's tried to master the light, it can't. And this verb is an anthrop- this, this is an example of an anthropomorphism. Anybody remember high school grammar? High school anthropomorphism. This is when human qualities are ascribed to inanimate objects. So the teapot screamed, right? Teapots don't scream, only humans scream. But that's an anthropomorphism. But here we have an anthropomorphism of darkness. It's clear that the light becomes a, purpose, uh, a person. But John actually has in mind, hey, this darkness is a person as well. It's not this, see, darkness is not some ambiguous notion of evil, of suffering, bad things that people do, the underside of of karma, I I guess, or, or things like this. John has in mind a singular person. How can you say say that right? Well, John is unique in the Gospels, and that you, there's no encounters with demons in the book of John. But if you want to learn about Satan, you go to the book of John. Because John is constantly highlighting what Jesus said about Satan. Always. Similarly, if you go to the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he's talking about Satan again. Anybody read Revelation? It's a bunch of Satan in there. John really wants the whole world to understand the greater cosmic conflict that's at play in this great spiritual drama of light and darkness, and they're not just abstract things that we get to attach whatever we want to them, whatever makes us comfortable. He says, no, the light is God, comes to earth in the person of Jesus, and darkness is Satan. This is what John is all about. This is what John is really all about. Now, now we're in in the Western world. Many of you are not from the Western world, so I'm going to give you a little insight into how Westerners think. In the West, it's commonly said that it's easier to convince someone of the existence of God than the existence of dark spiritual powers. It's true. It's true. All the Africans in the room are like, what? Africans are very comfortable with, yeah, dark spiritual powers exist. We've seen them. Not so in the West. This isn't new. This isn't new. It's actually this quote from the 1800s I want to share with you from famous French poet Charles Baudelaire. He penned this. One of the artifices or like designs or or lies of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. A version of this quote is quoted by Kevin Spacey in the movie The Usual Suspects as well for you movie buffs out there. One of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. This is what John's going to tell us about Satan though in this book. He does so by quoting Jesus. So if you struggle to Accept this right now. You, you don't have an issue with me. You don't have an issue with like church doctrine. You don't even have an issue with the gospel writers. You, you have an issue with Jesus and, and what he said was true about the greater cosmic conflict that's at play here. John records this. Jesus saying that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Murderer. That he's a liar. That he's the father of lies. And most importantly, um, he is the ruler of this world is what Jesus will say. Even more intensely, uh, Jesus will go on to refute the religious leaders of his day as they claim to be children of Abraham, saying, no, you're children of your father, the devil. 
Ooh. Not only that, you're carrying out his desires in the world. Yikes. John is the gospel writer that specifically tells us it's Satan who puts it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. So, so now we're, I, I must declare really the uncomfortable truth that John tells us here, which corresponds to what Jesus said. All humans are not children of God. All have been made in the image of God. All have been made in the image of God with inherent dignity, but they are not children of God. In fact, quite the opposite of tr- is true. All humanity has been kidnapped by Satan. Jesus calls him father. Jesus calls him ruler of the world. They've been kidnapped by the devil and are his children, and he oppresses them and torments them in order that they might carry out his desires in the world. This is an understanding of Satan just through the Gospel of John. This is what Jesus is going to say about Satan as we walk through John here. That these desires are contrary to the desires of Christ, and this is the spiritual drama that we're all in and all subject to. No one gets to ride the side seat around it. No one gets to take the path around it. Everybody is dipped right into it. This is the drama. Now, throughout this passage, so much passive language is used of the word, okay? Um, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were created through him. This is all passive. In him was life. The word's not doing anything really yet. He was coming into the world. He was in the world. You see, these are all quotes from our prologue. But in verse 12, we have the word taking an action verb on. Let's see if you can spot it. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name. Gave. This is the primary focus of the word. Giving. Giving what? Giving the right for people who are children of the devil to become children of God. This is what Jesus Christ showed up in the world to do. This is why he'll say, I didn't show up to judge and condemn the world. I showed up to give life to it. To give people the opportunity to to exercise this right to be in a new family. You've been enslaved and oppressed by Satan. I came to free you, to deliver you, to save you, to give you the right to become a child of God, to be part of a new family. And this is the way in which this word, the light, is profoundly different than the darkness. Jesus didn't come to kidnap us back. Not at all. But to give the right. To give the right to give you the path back to God should you decide to do it. The opportunity to do it, not to thrust you back at the, at the, the throne of the Almighty God. He says, I'm going to do all the work that's necessary by going to the cross, sacrifice my life, experience torment, pain, torture, death, so that anybody who wants to be part of the family of light might be able to step into that whenever they're ready. I'd much rather follow this ruler. This is incredible grace, not just of the person of Christ, but of the plan of the Father. 
to offer it as a right to be exercised. These two verses here, verses 12 and 13, the biblical scholars, I say, this is the climax of the prologue. Of these first 18 verses, 12 and 13, this is the climax. You have this active verb here. Sure, the, the, the word becoming flesh in verse 14, that's great and crucial, important and huge, but this is the climax. And this is the climax. This is the tension. This is the reality at play that John is going to speak to throughout the rest of his work. And it leaves us with questions. How can I be part of this family? How was this right one? Those are the questions that we're left with. How can I do it? The answer is right there in verse 12 as well. To receive him, all who did receive him. And then it's clarified uh, after children of God. What does receiving him look like? Believing in his name. Believing in his name. It's still abstract. John's going to take his entire gospel to tease out what that actually means. What that actually means. He doesn't give the, the, us the deductive answer of what it means to believe in Jesus like he does the deductive answer of who Jesus is here. And so I'm not going to give one right now either, but I will say this. We should buckle up and get ready for this. In John's gospel, he almost always defers to believing as a verb instead of faith as a noun. The other gospel writers use faith all the time as a noun, uh, pistis. But John is going to use pistao, believing, the action of faith. John wants to reorient us from conceiving of following God or being part of this family as my faith, my family's faith, the Christian faith, or even do I have enough faith? He wants to reorient us from that way of thinking to something else, believing, believing, which means following Jesus, listening to Jesus, trusting Jesus, obeying This is John's big focus. It might be because he sees the Christian movement as it goes out and expands. He says, I see a lot of people saying they have faith, but I don't see a lot of faithing happening. It's likely the tension that John is writing to. This is why he writes Revelation, why it starts the way it does, with these rebukes of the seven churches. One of them makes it, one of the seven. It's a lot of faith, not a lot of faithing. And this is why it's crucial. This is why it's crucial, okay? So if you've tuned back, if, if you've tuned out, come back to me for just a minute. Just one minute, okay? One minute. John wants to reorient us to the actions of believing in the name of Jesus Christ because becoming a child of God means to take on the same incarnational work of our big brother Jesus. This is why the, the, the verse immediately after the discussion of children in verse 14, John makes sure to note that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the first time he says it. The Son of God. It's after this notion that we become children of God. Oh, there's a son. We got a big brother, Jesus. This is what he's saying. In this drama, you become a child of God. What does that look like? Look at the Son of God. You're invited to the family business. You're invited to the family business. Now, this is more of a given in John's time. It's very 20th century Western to be like, I get to start my own business and be part of any industry I want to. Back then, your family business was, when you grew up, that was your business. That's what John's saying. We're invited to the family business of what? Being an incarnational presence to the darkness. 
That's what God does for the darkness. Being an incarnational presence to the darkness, he sends an incarnational presence to it. Then what happens? Some people in that darkness who are oppressed and afflicted by Satan reject, but some accept. What's the next step in the family business for these who are now children of God? They go back to the people who have rejected with the incarnational ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then some people reject, but some people accept. And so this is the waterfalling effect of the incarnational ministry. Jesus leaves, but incarnational ministry continues on through his brothers and sisters that take up the family work, the family business here. This is what is happening. This is what's really interesting in the first couple decades of ministry in Jerusalem. This was actually already happening. The disciples didn't leave kind of the area around Jerusalem for a couple decades. What were they doing? They were going back to the people who had rejected that Jesus was the Son of God in the hopes that they might accept him. See, in the past, I have been so guilty of being like, man, that job was so easy. You just had to go around and say Jesus, and people had no baggage. It's like, no, they were going to people who had rejected Jesus already. They were too. Our ministry in Seattle isn't all that special, I guess. It's possible for God to work in that way for people who had already rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Now, you might say, well, well, those were the disciples. Those were the disciples. God can't use me. I'm far too flawed. I'm not nearly skilled enough. No, the incarnation screams the exact opposite. It demands that we take seriously that the spiritual father has an intense desire to couple with flesh in order to incarnate in the world his intentions, his purposes, his grace, truth, life, light, all of it, all of it. Incarnation wasn't plan B, but the plan the whole time. It starts with the word and it extends to his followers. You might say, well, well God could use Jesus because he was God and, and without sin. I'm not God and last time I checked, I'm full of sin. <laughs> That's not entirely true. And we're going to find out about this in the book of John more and more. This is what becoming a child of God means. It means you're leaning on him and trusting him for forgiveness of that sin and recognizing him as Lord of your life, which does two things for you. First, you get washed by the blood of the Lamb. Second, you get the powerful, indwelling Holy Spirit. To say that God can't use you is to say that, that, that he is a God that has extended promises to you without follow through. To say that he's a God that has a plan that doesn't have much power to it. Sounds like humility. It's really calling God a powerless liar. Yikes, he went there. You can. This is what the incarnation tells us. God has equipped us, he's washed us and indwelled us that we might be an incarnational presence to the world. Now, what is incarnate ministry look like? How do we do this? Here at Sedaris, what, what we are really all about is we want everybody in the, in the city of Seattle to have access to an incarnate, like incarnate access, I guess you could call it, a disciple of Jesus empowered by his spirit. We're not hoping to like convert everybody, but just that everybody, when they have questions, they say, oh, I have a friend that I can, I can ask this question about God, about Jesus, about whatever. That Everybody has incarnate access to Christ through us. Now, incarnate access, let me tell you a few things that it's not. 
It's not internet access or biblical access, or you call it Bible access. Like, like now that we have the interwebs out there, we really don't need to work all that hard. Anybody can just go into Google and, and type in, in God and, and come up with something. Or like the Gideons did for us, we just got to get Bibles in every hotel room. Because if we did that, ooh, then we'd start to make some headway. No, 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 that's not, that's not incarnate access. Recall the Ethiopian reading the scroll of Isaiah in Acts 28. This is after Jesus has died and been raised again and the disciples are doing their own incarnational ministry to the world. There's an Ethiopian man. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. I guess it's not. It wouldn't look like this. It would look like this. Okay. He's reading it. Philip comes up to him and says, do you know what you're reading? And, and the Ethiopian looks that back at him very reasonably and says, how can I know what I'm reading unless someone explains it to me? And starting from there, it says, Philip preached to him the gospel, and he became a Christian and was baptized that very day. See, incarnate access is not internet access only or Bible access only. Secondly, incarnate access is not mere uh, social access or niceness, okay, where, where people are connected to Jesus or connected to Christians without really knowing that they are, in fact, Christians, where there really isn't an option or an opportunity for that connection to lead to conversation and consideration. That's just being around. That's that, we wouldn't call that incarnate access. Um, thirdly, incarnate access is not merely uh, prophetic rants where you get on your social media and you rail against the sins in, of this day or the evil powers of this day. That's not incarnate access either. Those are all reductions of providing true incarnate access of Jesus, which looks like this. Mimicking the methodologies and ways of Jesus Christ. The methodology, not just what he thought, but how he carried it in relationship with other people. This is why we created the 14 principles. 14 principles are just this. Incarnate access is engaging each one while looking for opportunities for big conversations. Incarnate access is, is going one step beyond comfortable and being aggressively available for those who, who are open to, to talking about and considering the things of God. Incarnate access is leading with lament and being honest about what the scriptures say. Incarnate access, providing it, is working really hard to build a bridge that the gospel can traverse over to the next generation that so desperately needs it because they need to be delivered from one family to another as well. This is what providing incarnate access to the world looks like. It's when we try to relate to the world as Jesus related to the world. And if you're not compelled to it, one of the things you might consider is it might not be that you lack boldness. You might lack empathy and compassion you might not fully see that all of humanity has been kidnapped by Satan, that he is oppressing them, that he leans on them heavy and afflicts them, and, and they're in crisis all the time because of his work in their lives. Sometimes we pray for boldness. What we really need to pray for is empathy. Empathy. It's terrible not to be a follower of Jesus. It's awful. Jesus brought life. The quote I read earlier from Charles Baudelaire, um, where one of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. That's actually only the first half of the quote. Uh, the second half goes like this. 
Another, perhaps equally fatal artifice, is to make them fancy that he is obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them if they get into true silence. It's worth noting that Charles wrote this towards the end of his life, a couple of years before he died. If you actually go to the Wikipedia of this dude, he lived a pretty sinful life. At the very end of his life, he became Catholic. He was kind of always nominally Catholic, but then he like leaned into it. He's speaking not just to some clever things. He's speaking to his experience of living in darkness and how Satan messed with him. Now it's real and it happens. But the word became flesh that we might become children of God. And become children of God means adopting this incarnational family ministry as our own. Now Jesus wants to train us up in this. It's, it's not like you just go out there and do it. There's an apprenticing that happens. So if, if you are like, I'm part of the family of God, but I don't know how to do this, that's okay. There's apprenticing that happens. It takes a while to on-ramp into this. I was talking with somebody a little while ago, I forget who it was, and they said, I don't know if I'd be able to have big spiritual conversations with someone who's in in Seattle area and in my workplace. I said, I think every other 23-year-old is in the same exact spot. (laughs) It takes time. It takes time to learn how to do this and, and do it. But thankfully, God modeled it for us by way of Christ, sends us his indwelling Holy Spirit so we can learn how to partner with him to actually do it in the world. It's for this reason to transfer more and more kidnapped children from, the, from Satan's family to God's family that we're here. This is who we are, children of God with the purpose to, to transfer more and more people from, from, from the rulership of Satan to, to the kingdom of God. This is why we're here. This is why Jesus came and dwelled within humanity 2,000 years ago. It's God's plan, it's Jesus' work, and it's the Spirit's indwelling within us that makes it happen. All of God is obsessed with this. This is the spiritual drama. This is what John is inviting us to. This is what John's going to teach us how to do. I'm really excited for John. I can't wait to see what he stirs up in our midst and all that get to be transferred from from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, because he wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. Would you pray with me?